is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More than 2.5 million people in Florida packing up, heading away from the state's west coast as they've been told to evacuate ahead of incoming Hurricane Ian. It just tore into western Cuba as a Category 3 storm and has left 1 million people without electricity. We'll go in-depth into what to expect when Ian slams Florida. The latest attack ad in the L.A. mayor's race tries to link Karen Bass to Scientology. We look into whether it's working. And NASA's DART spacecraft hits its target. Now we'll take a look into whether the plan to save humanity can actually work. Debt is piling up for people, unless, of course, you're rich. We'll look at how long people can keep putting things on the credit cards. The Federal Reserve's plan to help the American economy could be ruining other economies across the world. Doctors, other medical experts wondering if this is the calm before a winter COVID storm and social media always sparks trends and crazes. Latest one is the hot girl walk. We'll explain what that is. We start, though, with Hurricane Ian and Florida. Jim Contori is a Weather Channel meteorologist and storm chaser who is in Florida, just south of the Tampa Bay area. Uh, Jim, thanks for being with us. So is this still, Ian, on target to be, what were they saying the other day, the first major hurricane to hit that area in something like a century? Uh, In terms of a direct hit, okay, for Tampa, which is something... Back in October 1921, there was a Cat 3 hurricane that came in north of Tampa in Tarpon Springs. And what that does is it takes the wind and pushes all the water up into Tampa Bay. All right, so that's a big hit. This, especially over the last 12 hours or so, has re- 12 to 24 hours has really shifted off to the east a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that Tampa's out of the woods, okay? But the center point of the, tra- of the track cone does displace it a little bit to the south and east. So we'll see if that happens. Um, and so the answer to your question is like, well, if it stays on current center point, it, it, the worst of it misses Tampa. Okay, but if it goes just to the west of Tampa, like I said, the Tarpon Spring Storm did back in 1921, uh, it will be the worst hit in over 100 years. And, and you're talking about the most vulnerable U.S. city for storm surge in the country. And is it's it probably a $200 billion disaster? <laughs> Is it the storm surge that is the big, big worry? Absolutely. I mean, we always think, oh, flooding, or, or you'll get an amount of rain that you haven't gotten in a long time, or, or days worth of rain. But it is that that big wall of, of water, basically, is a huge worry here. Yeah, it, it's that water rise. It's the salt water. It's mixing water and electricity and automobiles. And, you know, we, we, we love the water as humans. We just love to be near it. We want to touch it. We want to wake up and breathe it every day. So what we've essentially done, guys, is take every grain of sand in Florida and turn it into a home, a hotel, a business, uh, Mickey's house, whatever we've done. The the point is, is there's just no room to, to really let nature happen here, except maybe the Everglades. Okay. Uh, And that, you know, that puts a lot of people and a a lot of dollars uh, at risk. Now, if I understand you uh, correctly, though, Jim, if it does stay in this, current track so it won't be a a direct hit on tampa but it's not going to be pleasant by any means is it no i mean you're you're talking about still getting some water rise but potentially not a devastating crippling storm surge uh you're still talking about something that is probably going to come into the coast as a major hurricane so i'm talking about winds at 111 miles an hour or greater and then trying to wind down as it's moving uh, again through the tampa metro area 
Uh, so as it's weakening, it is also slowing and dumping tons and tons and tons of rain. So you're talking about double-digit rainfall totals. And this is another thing. If it's going to do that anyway, all right, we know it's going to be a big rain producer. But if it does stay on that western track, which would you know bring the southerly wind component and the surge up into Tampa, think about this. You've got all this water rushing into Tampa Bay and other outlets where the water that's falling from the sky is trying to get out, and it can't. So all that piles up in addition to the surge. So now you have a two-pronged flood problem. Um, the city floods in areas without the storm surge. It floods from freshwater flooding, and then it also floods from the storm surge. That's the worst-case scenario. Do you get the sense that people listened and got out of town or went to take I, shelter I mean, somewhere? So. Or is this like, oh, you know, it's kind of later in the season. Uh, it'll be fine. So really almost all the, the West Coast, especially from the city southward, so I'm talking about Pinellas County down into you know Naples, has evacuation zones. And there's been so many people that have moved to Florida uh, since COVID. Uh, at one point I was hearing a gentleman who, who's – been monitoring that data talk about 1,100 people a day <laughs> were moving to Florida. So, I mean, you can get the idea of what we're, what we're talking about here. You know, 2 million people in, in the last couple of years. So, you know, they probably don't understand that. And the fact that Tampa hasn't done with a direct hit uh, since uh, 1921, nobody's gone through this. So, it, you know, it's just interesting territory. But the evacuation zones were clear. People got to see maps and put in their zip code as to where they are so they would know if they're in an evacuation zone. And the Florida EOC, frankly, is a, is a pretty well-oiled machine. I mean, they know how to get people out of harm's way. They, they realize the risks uh, by living by water, and they're no stranger to hurricanes. The problem is, is where this one's going, potentially, um, not a lot of people have dealt with it. Now, in terms of where this may go at present and with all the new computer models that we have, it, as I said, it may be just south of Tampa, but there's areas that have been hit uh, in 2004. Hurricane Charlie came in. It was a small hurricane. It moved all the way across the state of Florida. Uh, that's a possibility. But this is probably going to be much larger. So you're going to have much more storm surge. And it's going to move a lot slower. So it's going to have the chance to dump all that rain I was talking about. Yeah. yeah. Jim Cantori, Weather Channel meteorologist. Jim, thanks so much for talking to us. It's uh, south of Tampa right now. Maybe you've seen the latest Rick Caruso television ads that link... Karen Bass to the Church of Scientology. It uses clips from a speech Bass gave in uh, 2010 at the opening of the church's headquarters in Los Angeles, and then it uses newspaper headlines that allege wrongdoing on the part of the church. Bass's campaign went on the defensive, calling the ad misleading, says Bass condemns Scientology. So is that ad effective? Dan Schnorr is a political communications expert and USC professor. Dan, thanks for being back with us. So what do you think? Uh, is that the kind of ad that will resonate with enough people, perhaps, to, I don't know, make a difference? I have to admit, and thanks for having me, guys. As always, I really appreciate it. Uh, I have to admit that while the Caruso campaign might be looking at public opinion polling that says something different, this doesn't seem like the top-of-mind matter that would overly concern most Los Angeles voters. That's not to say that there's not uh, a place in campaigns for questioning the opponent's personal credibility, but Church of Scientology is not really a front-of-mind matter for most voters. So 
Are we just at the point of the campaign, though, where you want to get your jabs in and this is some place where you can do that if you're the Caruso camp? And, and sometimes, I mean, you don't even have to really be super detailed in these, and they often aren't, but you just have to raise some, like, specter of something fishy going on, and then people go, ooh, I don't like that. Well, look, there's no shortage of attack targets that either Caruso or Bass can level against the other one. And you're exactly right at this point in the campaign. We're going to be seeing quite a bit of that heading in both directions. The one thing that might make this uh, uh, a smart tactical move, however, is the Caruso campaign at this point may think that there's not a lot of swing voters left for them to win over. And by criticizing Bass on her personal credibility, this could be a way of discouraging her base from turning out to vote on Election Day. So a very progressive voter who's never going to vote for Rick Caruso, here's something they don't like about Karen Bass. Maybe that just deflates them a little bit, and they don't turn out to vote. I mean, you've been in the political game a long time. What sort of discussions do you think happen when they're all sitting around and they have to decide, uh, and this goes for either camp, actually, and they have to decide what they are going to put into their ads? How do they come up with this? Well, what both sides know, what smart campaign strategists in both parties and across the ideological spectrum know, is that a negative ad is very rarely going to move a candidate, a voter from one candidate to another. In other words, if you're running Donald Trump's campaign and tell the voters something really bad about Joe Biden, they're probably not going to switch over and vote for Trump or vice versa. What a negative ad is designed to do more than anything else is, as we talked about a moment ago, to discourage, to demotivate the opponent's most loyal supporters, not to make them switch sides, for, for them to say, oh, why bother? Neither one of them is any good. I'm not going to take the time to vote. Does it have the chance of backfiring in any way when you do something like this? I wonder if it's, if it's like too weird. It's got this wacky music behind it, and the video isn't that great. And it's like it's not super HD. It's from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And, and did someone ever have a chance to just write this off and be like, okay, is she a Scientologist? I don't know. What'd she say? Uh, who cares? It's just that's a weird ad. Yeah. Well, we know two things about negative advertising. We know, number one, that voters are much more likely to remember a negative message than a positive one. That's why campaigns do it. But we also know that voters don't like candidates who engage in negative campaigning. And that kind of backlash can sometimes uh, harm the candidate who's leveling the criticism. So the Caruso campaign obviously believes that the benefits of discouraging Bass's supporters outweigh the downside of alienating potential swing voters. But my own opinion, just to back up for half a second, if Rick Caruso is going to win this campaign, it's going to be by convincing Angelinos that he's better equipped to handle homelessness and crime in a more aggressive way than the status quo. I don't mean to backseat drive, but I don't understand why the Caruso campaign is spending a minute or a dollar on anything other than the two critical issues of crime and homelessness. Dan Schnur, political communications expert, USC professor. There's a debate coming up. There is. Mm -hmm, next week. The uh, 6th yes. of October. Ours. Ours, 5 o'clock. Well, I mean, it's the candidates. But, but it are. It's kind of, It's like a joint enterprise. We are providing the stage. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and the questions. <laughs> so so tune in, and uh, I'm sure it'll be very interesting. And uh, send us questions, by the way. Debate at com, and uh, we may ask some of those to them. Coming up, the moves to help the economy here, apparently causing big problems for other countries. 
And another fitness craze starts on social media. It's a new twist on the simplest of exercises. Right now, though, NASA scientists trying to figure out if that DART spacecraft did what they hoped it would do, change the path of an asteroid. Craft slammed into it yesterday, 14,000 miles an hour. Tarek Daly is the Draco Deputy Instrument Scientist for the DART mission, also a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Tarek, thanks for being with us. Congratulations. Take me back to yesterday, and how far out was it when you when you thought in your head, oh, oh, we're going to do it. This thing's going to hit. <laughs> you know, for me, it was 20 minutes before impact. 20 minutes. Confidence. <laughs> yeah, so that's the time, actually, when the... Uh, the smarts on the spacecraft decided they really were precision locked on the asteroid we were trying to hit. And then it was just sort of ethereal as it, you know, filled the field of view of the camera. And we started to see this smudge of light become a fascinating world, really, uh, small worlds, but a world nonetheless that will challenge and puzzle scientists for decades to come. Now, I know you're all uh, scientists and engineers there, but uh, fess up. Did you keep your fingers crossed? You know, there are some folks that uh, assume what we call the galt position after a, a defeat scientist, which is fingers crossed, arms crossed, legs crossed, just to make sure nothing goes wrong. So how long until you figure out if this works? And then real quick, in an easy way that we can digest, how do you figure out if this worked? You know, there are really two parts to that. The first question is, did we hit the asteroid? And we know that part worked because we saw it happen from the spacecraft. The other question is, how much did we change that asteroid's path through space? And that is being measured right now, actually, by telescopes on the ground, as well as telescopes like James Webb and Hubble. Uh, they actually were observing last night, and they saw uh, the, the Didymo system became much brighter, actually, after the impact as material was being thrown off. And that was seen by telescopes on the ground as well. So as that uh, ejecta, that material clears, then they'll be able to measure the orbit period or how long it takes Dimorphos to go around its parent asteroid Didymos. And by comparing that, uh, how long it takes it to make that orbit after impact versus before impact, that'll take a few weeks, but we'll then be able to really understand how much of a shove we were able to give that asteroid. Uh, this asteroid was what, about 500 feet? Was it about right? That's right. Okay. So uh, do we think that this strategy would work if this ended up working for that? Would it, in theory, have to work for a much, much larger object? You know, in theory, yes. If you took a heavier spacecraft and slammed it into a larger object, that could work. But the fact is that we actually know where all the asteroids are that are, say, dinosaur killers. We know where those are. The ones we don't fully understand are the ones that are actually about the size of this 500-foot asteroid, about between the size of, say, an Olympic swimming pool and a pyramid. Um, we don't know where most of those ones are, although NASA is constantly looking for them. And this technology was done at Didymos because it is the kind, the size of an asteroid that we do worry about. So it, that's what makes this actually a really realistic demonstration of this technology. We both looked at each other in here when you said pyramid, and it was like in the eyes, like, how was your day today? Oh, not great. Pyramid landed on me. Uh, <laughs> are we going to get better at spotting those or, or or is it just like, you know what, just get into them as fast as you can if one is headed our way? You know, right now we know of no asteroids of any size for the next hundred years coming our way. But NASA is working to find more and more of these ones 
these sort of, you know, regional devastation kind of asteroids. NASA has several ground-based observatories that are looking and discovering new asteroids all the time. Um, they're also looking at concepts to put a telescope in space specifically dedicated to looking for asteroids. And, um, you know, putting a telescope in space, actually, from my perspective, would be a really great approach. I'm not NASA, so I can't say what they'll do, but I do hope that... Uh, we find more of these because let's say we find, say, 90% of the asteroids and it turns out that none of those are coming our way. Well, you know, then we know. Um, but if we find one that is, we can be ready because of this test we did last night with DART. Derek Daly, instrument scientist for that DART mission, also at Johns Hopkins. We'll just say planetary defense because it sounds I know. Cool. It, it, and it sounds like a really good uh, Netflix special. Yeah, right? Yeah. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Your credit card balances, thus higher now. If they are, you are part of the rest of the bottom 90% of the country when it comes to taking on more debt. Yeah, Federal Reserve data shows debt soared by $300 billion over the last year for that bottom 90%, the largest annual gain on record. Oh, and the top 10%? Well, their debt levels are about the same as before. Kristen Myers is editor-in-chief at TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. Kristen, thanks for being with us. So uh, here we go again, right? The rich get richer, and those who are not rich stay the same or get poorer, huh? Right. Well, I don't know if this is so much the rich getting richer, but it's just clearly that the rich are able to essentially handle tough economic times, right? So we are seeing economic shocks, and we have over the last two years. And frankly, the wealthy, while they, of course, are impacted like by economic shocks, they're not being knocked backwards um, in terms of their financial health. And that is what is happening to most of Americans as we are seeing consumer debt is rising. And it's frankly because Everything is more expensive now. And if you have the cash, you tend to use it. And when you don't, you turn to credit. What happened to all the headlines that said, even despite the pandemic, because all those payments went out, that people's savings uh, were way higher than usual? Did it just only last so long? And then we hit inflation and now it's like, well, I'm out of cash, to your point. Well, so what we had, two things have been happening, right, throughout this pandemic. One, we had what's called a K-shaped recovery. So think of those two legs of the K. We have one set of people, they're doing much better, right? That K, that leg is moving upwards. And a lot of Americans, frankly, were also a part of that group. We did see household balance sheets improve. We did see savings accounts decrease, um, I should say, increase. But there is, of course, that section of the American population that was the other leg of that K, which declined. And those are the folks really that we are seeing really taking on more and more debt. Now, I should say this, while we are seeing more Americans take on, on more debt, we are seeing a lot more Americans better able to handle the debt that they do have. So this is at least still the silver lining. So beyond the 90%, which of course is almost all Americans, a lot of them took on debt in the form of mortgages or in the form of cars. And a lot of those Americans are still doing pretty well. They're able to make those payments. They got pay raises. They got wage bumps. What we really need to worry about are really the bottom 50% of Americans who are essentially financing things in their life on debt and on credit because they don't have the savings uh, to back up some of those purchases and they are financially struggling. And what happens to that percentage that you're just talking about who have jobs and are able to, as you put it, handle the debt? 
when and if uh, the Federal Reserve's actions by constantly raising interest rates perhaps does lead us, as some fear, into a recession and those people lose their jobs. Right. This, of course, is obviously the scenario that everyone wants to avoid. And and the reason is because we all remember exactly what a recession looked like just about a decade ago or a little over a decade ago now. Um, We are seeing a lot of Americans, they are still able to handle some of those mortgage payments. And because of let's just using the housing uh, housing market as an example, we don't have a lot of folks that are at risk or as at risk of default like they were before. And that's thanks to tightened regulations because of the recession. But there are, and there's no way around it, there are going to be many Americans that are going to struggle. If you don't have an income coming in, if you don't have emergency savings to last you two months, three months, six months um, before you get a new job, there are going to be some cuts that are going to have to be made. Hopefully people can avoid losing their homes. They can hopefully avoid losing things like their cars and it could just do a little bit of belt tightening, but there are going to be some people that are really going to slip through the cracks. What I will say with these rising interest rates, even before we hit a recession, and this is also a really big concern for those Americans that really are tacking on more and more debt, the more that interest rates go up, the more that that debt is going to become more and more expensive because the interest rate on that credit card is going to go up and up and up, which means that every single month that you carry a balance, you are going to have to pay more money. And that's really going to create some economic hardships, frankly, starting from now, um, if it hasn't done so already. Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief, TheBalance.com. Well, the Federal Reserve's moves to try to slow inflation here in the U.S. having a big negative impact overseas, and it is not a good one for other countries. They're dealing with price hikes and high debt payments. It's because the interest rate increases here are making the dollar stronger versus other currencies. Iswar Prasad is an economics professor at Cornell University, author of several books on currencies, including The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. Professor, thanks for being with us. So take us through some of what's happening here. I think a lot of people here have noticed over the recent days a lot of headlines about the pound uh, sinking against the dollar. Yep, it's not just the pound. It's practically every major currency sinking against the dollar. And there's a bunch of reasons. You mentioned the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates aggressively. But the reality is that the U.S. economy, um, although it's not looking great, is doing a lot better than most of the other economies around the world. Plus, in many other countries, there is a lot of political instability that they're dealing with. So all told, in international finance, you know, it's all relative. And relatively speaking, the U.S. economy seems in better shape. And the Federal Reserve is ahead in terms of hiking interest rates compared to other major central banks. So that's why we have a rising dollar. Okay, so now in practical terms, and correct me if I'm wrong, here's one of the ramifications of this. If I'm an American, well, not if, I am, uh, and I decide I want to take a trip to, say, England. <laughs> you have I, a passport. I, yeah, I, a, I have to check on that one. Yeah. I'll double check when I go home later. Uh, but if I want to take a trip to, to the U.K., right, it's going to cost me less now because it's kind of a bargain, because the dollar is worth a lot more against the pound sterling, right? But the downside to that is it means for British people, they may not be able to afford as easily to come here. That's exactly right. You know, in economics, um, the answer to most questions, it it depends. And the effect of a dollar appreciation depends on where you're sitting. So if you're a tourist going out to the rest of the world, that's great, because you're going to get discounts effectively on any purchases you make in Europe, um, uh, including Britain or anywhere else. 
But for tourists coming to the US from the rest of the world, it's going to look a lot more expensive. Likewise, if you think about Americans buying imported goods from abroad, it's going to be a lot cheaper. So it's going to help at the margin hold down inflation a little bit. But for the rest of the world now, it's going to be much more expensive to buy US goods and services. So there is going to be less demand. So if you're a US exporter, the rising dollar is certainly hurting you. Yeah, take me into some of these like different world markets because we're we're like the reserve currency for everything. When you're settling accounts, when you're pricing goods, if it's food or if it's energy, it's usually in US dollars, right? So this is going to just ripple all over the place. That's right. For many countries right now that are already dealing with high inflation, this is a bit of a problem and your currency depreciates. So if you're a country like say China or India, in principle if your currency depreciates, that's a good thing. If it loses value, it means your exports are going to be more competitive around the world. But the problem for most exporting countries is that demand around the world is weak because practically every economy is slowing down. So the demand for their goods and services, despite their cheaper currency, is not going to be that much more. On the other hand, imported goods are going to cost them a lot more because the value of their currencies is falling. So they have to pay more in their own currency for import. So this is going to stoke even more inflation. Now, for many developing countries, it gets a little worse because many of them, uh, many of their governments, some of their corporations have borrowed abroad in dollars. So now they have to pay even more in terms of their domestic currencies to pay off those dollar obligations or even meet the interest obligations. So for many emerging market countries and developing countries around the world, this is really a very difficult situation. Okay, so here, here's the part of the interview, Professor, where I'm going to ask you to go way out on a limb. And tell us where you think this is headed. You know, there is a, um, a set of macroeconomic factors, as we talked about interest rate, growth rate prospects and so on, that are driving the dollar. But there is another very important consideration, which is that anytime there is economic and financial turmoil anywhere in the world, including in the U.S., people run to the dollar as a safe haven currency. In other words, a safe place to park your money before all the um, uh, turmoil blows over. So if over the next year we move to a situation where economies around the world are slowing down, where they're having difficulty battling inflation, people might look to a safe place to put their money, and that might be the dollar. So it might well be the case that those safe haven flows might strengthen the dollar even more compared to where we are right now. That's Iswar Prasad, economics professor at Cornell University, author of several books, and one of them is The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. More in-depth to come. A couple of I, things. I uh, checked, by the way. You I, are? I, yeah, I, I do have a U.S. It's got the blue yeah, totally. with the eagle on it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wait, it's supposed to have an eagle? <laughs> wait, wait, i got to look again. <laughs> if he's not here tomorrow, folks. Yeah. Uh, he's overstayed his welcome. <laughs> This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Winter fast approaching. Some medical experts say they're worried about another COVID wave. There are signs of it happening now in the UK, and those experts say that usually means that we're going to be next. Yeah, things have been quiet here in California with cases and the number of people in the hospital on the decline. But for how long? And will we need to go back to restrictions and those masks? Dr. Monica Gandhi is back with us. She's an infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Always enjoy it. Uh, So where are we now? It, It looks like the numbers are good for California. But as we just said, the numbers might be going in the wrong direction in the UK. We tend to follow, right, by normally a few weeks what happens there. What, what's your take on all of this? 
You know, I, um, I think it depends on what we mean by going in the wrong way in terms of cases versus hospitalization. So to put it really clearly, cases and hospitalizations absolutely used to track at the beginning of the pandemic, not one-on-one, but when cases would go up, hospitalizations would go up because we didn't have any immunity in our population. Then with the Delta variant, in places like California that had high rates of vaccination, we saw that cases went up with Delta, but our hospitalizations were very manageable because we had so much immunity because we did a great job vaccinating. Then what we see with Omicron, with the Omicron variant, also we continue to have high rates of vaccination. By this time, a lot of people are getting natural immunity from Omicron. And some of our hospitalizations were misclassified, um, probably around 67 to 70% because we'd swab everyone in the hospital. So we'd think they were hospitalized for COVID, but actually it was it was that they had it in their nose, but they were there for something else. We really saw that coming out with Omicron. And now places like LA County, USC is really reporting 90% of their hospitalizations are likely not there for COVID. Um, and we're doing really well in terms of our severe disease. So it depends. Cases are going to go up. Um, if we get new variants, there's a BA275. There's other variants that happened in India, but the hospitalizations didn't go up. And so I'm hoping our severe disease will stay low. And we're always going to have cases, unfortunately, because it's really hard. Well, it's impossible to get rid of COVID. Yeah. Are you surprised we haven't seen new variants yet? And it's been these like Omicron subvariants? I think that's a great question. There was a stat news article in May of 2022 where they said, you know what? This virus is actually not changing as much as it used to. We haven't seen a whole new variant. It's actually showing more predictable patterns like we used to see with flu where there are little changes. And so these are all Omicron subvariants, exactly like you said. That's a good sign. We haven't seen Sigma or Delta, you know, um, Zeta or, you know, we haven't seen big shifts because that's what happens when when a lot of the population is immune you know i'm also wondering i mentioned earlier that we in the past we would kind of track pretty closely to the experience in the uk but we've parted companies have we not a company have we not with the uk in the booster vaccines their omicron tweaked booster is not the same this time as the one available to the u.s Yes. So they have a BA1 um, bivalent vaccine. So it's that original Omicron uh, subvariant that we saw starting back in, in November, you know, Thanksgiving Day was the first day we saw it. Um, and they have just stuck with that booster and they're they're recommending it for older people, probably because the boosters work great for older people. Um, we have to remember we can get our antibodies up uh temporarily uh, with any uh, formulation, but it's those T cells and B cells, those that cellular immunity that's keeping us safe from severe disease. And so same with, um, so the UK just stuck with that BA1 bivalent. They're recommending it more for older people. Here we're, we have the BA4, BA5 bivalent, which to be fair, BA5 is the most common circulating one, but in, in maybe three months, we'll have another subvariant. But the boosters work, vaccines work. And that's, that's what's so profound about our California that that we we really have high rates of vaccination. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Thank you. Social media has created a new fitness trend. Well, it's not exactly new; it's just a new take on something as well as old as humans walking. Yeah, leave it to TikTok, right? Yeah. And a USC student went on TikTok, started what's called the Hot Girl Walk. When you go for a walk every day, but you can think about a few things that are important: your goals, how grateful you are. 
how hot you are. With us is Elena Cardone, businesswoman, lifestyle influencer, former model and actress, author of Build an Empire, How to Have It All. Elena, thanks for being here. So is walking cool again? Oh, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but Absolutely. But why the why the hot part of it? I mean, it sounds a little narcissistic. It's about but, confidence. But yeah, but but I mean, and do you have to be well, two questions actually. A, do you have to be hot, whatever that means? And B, do you have to be a girl? I don't think you have to be hot or a girl, but I think if you walk and you get your adrenaline going, I think you're going to feel better about yourself, no matter if you're a man or a woman. It's important to like get your body moving and commit to something and then actually complete the cycle of action. Makes you feel better about yourself, thus you feel hotter. So. I think we can see this like a couple different ways, right? And number one is the TikTok way, which is why it went viral. Go out there and be confident and go on a walk and enjoy yourself and think about your goals. But also, is part of this when you really just dial it down like too many of us are cooped up in the house and we sit all day and we don't do anything? Like, go outside and take a walk. It's not rocket science. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's more about today in in today's day and world especially like the tiktok and the social media so many people spend their time being introverted like they're they're thinking inward me 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 they become a little obsessed and as you said kind of narcissistic they're judging themselves they're judging their lives they're they're actually just you know so physically close to a computer screen there's there's a lot of introversion so actually other than the health benefits of taking a walk, it's like, take a walk, look outside, get some distance, see the color of the trees. It gets you extroverted. It forces you to get outside of your head and out into the physical world, like looking, seeing, observing, obnosing, seeing what's going on around you. And then you add other benefits of like, oh yeah, at the same time, you can start to like create and envision your life and then reverse engineer as, 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 the as the woman that created the the concept she says focus and envision your life and then you can kind of just start on your walk like envisioning well where do you want to be and then reverse engineer well if i want to be there what do i have to do what actions do i need to take in order to get there all the while you're like thinking about this you're walking you're actually doing something you're actually taking an action you got to get those ten thousand yeah, steps right yeah but you, but you know i i like i walk almost every day and the other week i was walking and i really did feel pretty hot but that's because it was like 98 degrees outside so, <laughs> so i really did feel hot uh but but what kind of walking are we talking about does it have to be kind of you know like speed walking do you have or could it just be a leisurely walk how do you walk to accomplish the things that you were just ticking off well, it all depends on what you're going for. If you're trying to go for a health kind of walk, um, yeah, you know, you pick up the pace, you keep it active. But uh, but I've heard, and again, I'm no health expert, but I've heard you if you you can still have a conversation, and but as long as your body is in motion, you're getting the health benefit from it. Um, for me, when I'm walking, I'm shopping, baby. I was just in the French Riviera. I made sure I got my steps in all the while. I am shopping up and down the French Riviera. It was amazing. <laughs> so to me, it doesn't matter how you do it or what you got to do to inspire the motivation behind the walk as long as you're getting it done. Is this like a post-pandemic, don't let all that get you down too much? Because, yeah, we were locked up. People got super sad. It was rough. We realized that. But now, like, you know what? Just go out and do something and, and kind of, like, to your point, get your headspace 
in a good space and think like, okay, things are not that bad. Let's make a plan. Yeah, exactly. And get out and, and, and just extrovert. You know, I believe in that. Even during COVID, I, I walked about four to six miles almost every day um, just because I couldn't be cooped up. It was the only time I got out of the house. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is not good for your health. But I like your idea to feel really hot while walking. Do it along the French Riviera. Right. Yeah, it's a whole different yeah. aesthetic. It's yeah. a whole different <laughs> that, vibe. I yeah. just got back two days ago. I'm like, there are new levels to this game, man. I had no idea. There are levels to the game. I mean, there are levels to the mindset. And I'm telling you, mine is blown. So I was, I was doing a whole lot of walking and a whole lot of, okay, I'm going to the next level. Nothing is holding me back. You know what? I've been the biggest, I realized on those walks in the French Riviera, shopping from store to store. It, I, this whole time, I always thought it was, uh, you know, my kind of middle class upbringing. I thought these were all the reasons that held me back. No, what I learned from all of this was it's me from my walk. It's been me. I've been my biggest suppressor this whole time. Because when I see the nice things in the store that I can't, quote unquote afford I think oh, I don't need that and so what does my mind do it shuts down it shuts down and goes oh I don't need that so therefore I'm not going to create it but I walk by these stores and I said you know what I need that I like that I gotta tell you the next how can I get that I'm, the you know what I'm walking with you. Yeah. <laughs> the next time you walk, I'm walking with it's you. Way I'm more entertaining. You, I, and then I jack myself up, man, to heighten levels. I'm like, you know what? Nothing's stopping me. I can do this. Boom. And the next thing you know, you got your four miles in. Way to cartoon. Businesswoman, lifestyle influence. Do you wow. feel like more confident and better already just talking to her? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, boy, that's what an advertisement for walking. I'm booking flights, man. Let's go. No, not a flight. To the Riviera. Oh, oh yeah, but then you have to walk. <laughs> yeah. Can't get out of the plane and, like, sit at the pool. Hot girl walking yeah. right through LAX. Yeah, just walk. Wow. All right. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow <laughs> that's at enough. 1 p.m. Yeah. We'll see what we do tomorrow. <laughs>